biggest thing is understanding trust, right? And this goes back to our 25-year-old coach, John O'Sullivan, the 25-year-old coach, thought trust was all about ability. Yeah, I was a Division One player. I was a pro player, so you should trust me. Then I had kids and recognized like, you know, the most important thing in my world, my child, um, why would I trust someone just because they can kick a ball far, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or whatever. So trust is about connection. Trust is about walking the walk. It's about being dependable, being believable, being vulnerable. Um, and if, if parents see you doing all those things, then they're going to trust you. And if they trust you, then when something goes sideways or their kid's a little bit upset or their kid didn't play as much as they thought they should, they're far more likely to call you up in a rational way and say, Hey, Bobby, what's going on? Like what's, what's happening in this situation? Because I know my kid loves you and I, I know you love these kids and you work your tail off for them. Right. Versus mm-hmm. if you're this aloof character that doesn't connect with anyone, you know, now what do the parents do? Well, you won't talk to me. So I'm going to go to the AD or I'm going to skip the AD and go to the principal or I'm going to go to the superintendent. And now you look like an idiot because the first time that you hear there's a problem, it's coming from the superintendent or a board member. Right. Yeah. And it was a little tiny problem. And now it's a big thing and it costs you your job. Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the 50 cups of coffee podcast. I am your host, Bobby Audley. We kicked off this part two of season one last week with coach and manager of Manchester United, Charlotte Healy. If you have not listened to that episode yet, go back, do yourself a favor and listen to it right now. Not that this episode is not fantastic. It is. And I have been receiving wonderful feedback from my interview with coach and manager, Charlotte Healy. And so if you're a coach, a manager, a leader who's interested in this interview, I promise you'll be interested in that one. So go check it out. And number one, I appreciate all the messages on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter that I've been receiving over the past week about the podcast kicking back off and about the interview with Charlotte. And I, I ask you if if you love the episode, if you're enjoying the podcast itself, if you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you are listening and please leave a review and a rating wherever you listen. If you're enjoying the show, that is the absolute best way way to help us continue to grow. Leave us a review, a rating, and subscribe wherever you are listening. Before we get into this week's episode, prior to the break, I'd been doing kind of a coffee shop shout out to, to local and I guess coffee shops around the country that I enjoy. And uh, since I don't have any updates, I really don't have any updates. Typically, when I kick off the episode, I'll talk about what teams I've been working with, where I've been traveling, where I'm headed to next. And right now, as I'm sure many of you are experiencing, there's just no updates. And so that's not bad it is what it is right now. Now, however, the the update I have for you is coffee related. Um, during the the kind of uh, quarantine that we've all been a part of, I uh, I decided to test out making my own cold brew coffee, and so I looked up reviews online and asked some friends who who do this, and and ended up buying a Bean Envy B E A N N V E N V Y cold brew coffee maker. It's literally just a, a, a almost a pitcher like a 
glass pitcher, 32 ounces, and you you put the coffee beans in the center of it. You pour some water in it, and you let it sit for 12 to 24 hours. I like dark coffee, so I put um, hardly ground at all. You grind. You do need, I guess, your own kind of coffee grinder. Uh, so I grind the beans for five seconds instead of 30 seconds, which is typically for drip coffee. Grind it for five seconds, put it in there, let it sit for 24 hours, and I get my own cold brew coffee. Um, really grew out of getting tired of spending the $5 or whatever it costs to go get it from Starbucks or a local coffee shop to get some cold brew. So um, this has been cool. And that's my my coffee shop shout out for today is just telling you about my Bean Envy cold brew coffee maker. And that's all I have for you from an update perspective. And so with that being said, I'm just going to get into the guest for this week. My guest this week is a special one for me. He is the founder of Changing the Game Project, author of two number one best-selling books, Changing the Game, The Parent's Guide to Raising Happy, High-Performing Athletes, and Giving Youth Sports Back to Our Kids. That book is a favorite of mine. And his new book, Every Moment Matters, How the World's Best Coaches Inspire Their Athletes and Build Championship Teams. He is the host of one of my favorite podcasts, The Way of Champions Podcast, where each week they connect you with the top minds in sport, coaching, leadership, and creating championship programs so you can take your athletes and teams to the next level. As many of you know, I coach a middle school lacrosse team in Washington, D.C., and on my drive to practice each day, I will listen to The Way of Champions podcast to sharpen my saw as a coach. It's a great one. It's it's a number, one of those podcasts that inspired me to start this show. And, and I, I just pulled tremendous value from that. Of course, my guest today is none other than John O'Sullivan. I was first introduced to John by TJ Buchanan, who was a past guest on this show. TJ and I were talking about what we believe is wrong with youth sports today. And we were talking positively about what could be right about it, how easy it would be to just do it right, how many organizations and coaches and groups are doing it right. So it wasn't just this bash fest about youth sports, but it was kind of, you know, as, as I was talking about without knowing how we could change the game for youth sports. And so TJ told me to go watch John O'Sullivan's TEDx talk because I hadn't yet and I had not heard of, of John O'Sullivan yet. And the TEDx talk is called Changing the Game in Youth Sports. It has been viewed almost 400,000 times. I think it's about 380,000 as of as of me checking this morning. And, and I'm telling you, that TEDx talk uh, and reading John's book, called changing the game that changed the game for me i've told the story enough on this podcast and i think i tell it again in this episode about working with elite athletes who are no longer having fun with their sport and how that impacted my mission in a really really big way and it certainly impacted a lot of the conversations i've had on this podcast a little bit more about John before we get into it. John's work has been featured by CNN, Outside Magazine, ESPN, and NBC Sports. John has worked with some of the best coaches in the world. He's interviewed some of the best coaches in the world on his podcast. I could go on and on, and I'd encourage you just to, I'm sure many of you who are coaches already know who Johnny O is, and if you don't, um, Google him. And, and look up the work he's doing. If you are pulling value out of the interviews on this podcast, particularly the sports uh, interviews and the, and the ones we do with coaches, I promise you, you're going to get a lot of value out of consuming the work of John O'Sullivan. 
Again, if you are enjoying this show and you'd like to help us out, please subscribe wherever you are listening and please, please, please leave us a rating and a review. It is tremendously helpful as we continue to grow this podcast. I'm, I'm tremendously grateful uh, for those who have helped so far and sent me wonderful messages. Uh, please, please keep that up and let's continue to, to grow and share this podcast with more and more leaders and coaches. For now, please enjoy my cup of coffee with John O'Sullivan. So uh, I, I grew up being a multi-sport kid on Long Island and, you know, growing up in New York is great because you're introduced to so many sports and so many different cultures. Um, I fell in love with soccer, but I also played basketball. I was a wrestler for eight years. I think if you grew up on Long Island, you have to play lacrosse at some point. Yeah. Um, Where on Long Island did you grow up? Port Jefferson. Okay, so my, about, wife's from, my wife's from Kings Park. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So a little, little further east, but I went to a high school closer to Kings Park called St. Anthony's High School, Long yep. Island, yeah. and um, and you know, really in in high school, decided that soccer was going to be my thing. Um, fell in love with that, pursued that on the college level. Played uh, Division One at Fordham University in New York City, and then decided I was done with New York. Um, I'm also a big passionate skier. And so I, I moved to Vail, Colorado for a year just to kind of put the game aside and, and do that. And then an old coach of mine owned a, a professional team in Wilmington, North Carolina. And so he asked me to come coach. So I played a little bit, but all the injuries caught up with me finally. Uh, but I had really, I'd started coaching and I really enjoyed coaching and, and thought, well, instead of driving back and forth between North Carolina and Vail, Colorado to ski a bit and coach a bit, maybe I could, uh, and, and play a bit, maybe I could combine these two. So I, I got a coaching job at the university of Vermont and spent four years up there. Most, mostly working with the men's program, also trained the goalkeepers for the women's team for a year and, um, realized that I, that I loved coaching. Uh, I then moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where my wife, uh, was doing her medical residency and got into the youth coaching piece there. And then about 14 years ago, moved out to Oregon and uh, was again, started running an organization, grew a club from 200 to 1500 kids and um, really got to build a very cool program in Bend, Oregon, where I live. And then about 2011, I got really burnt out. I, I had sort of lost sight of my purpose when I think any of your listeners, if they're in any sort of youth sports administrative position, you realize how much time you spend on admin and off the field stuff. And I got disconnected from coaching. I got disconnected from the kids. I, I was tired of being um, away from my family on holidays and my kids were getting old enough that they noticed dad was never home for dinner. And, uh, I just had to step away. You know, I just, I just stopped. And so I took a little time and thought about what I wanted to do next and decided, uh, I wanted to write a book on sort of my experience. And I felt like a lot of parents needed help. Like, you know, there was so much misinformation out there, so I wrote this book, Changing the Game, about um, how parents can help their kids have the right sort of mental state 
uh, in the right conditions to be successful in sport. And then I realized that it actually isn't like, it's not that hard to write a book. It's really hard to let people know that you've written a book. Right. <laughs> and so, and so my publisher was like, well, you should start a blog or something like that. So I started a blog and it was really the blog that became popular much more so than the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of the heyday of Facebook where, where, you know, your reach was really big and there wasn't a bazillion ads on there. And so um, we built up a nice Facebook following and a, some of our early blogs around talent selection and identification and early sports specialization and, um, um, you know, all, all things, you know, sport related went, went viral, at least in, in my mind, right? Like my first couple of blog posts, like, you know, my brother and my mom would read it. Right. And you get like three Facebook likes and then it went to 20 then it went to a hundred. And I remember one all of a sudden had like 10,000. I'm like, what the heck's going on? And then one had a hundred thousand shares and I'm like, what is going on? And so kind of found a niche. Right. And uh, yeah, that really blew up into then a Ted talk and, uh, way of champions podcast and a lot of speaking and traveling and and then a yeah, new book last december and uh here we are today yeah and I, so i know you know your new book is is well we'll get into your new book but you mentioned uh in this you know sharing of the journey your original book was that for parents originally when you first set out to write that book I mean, the, the subtitle is The Parent's Guide to Raising Happy, High-Performing Athletes and Giving mm-hmm. Youth Sports Back to Our Kids. But what I would say is that it, it's really applicable to coaches. And I think sometimes we, we think here in North America, oh, parents and coaches, but 90-something percent of coaches are also parents, right? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. they have their own kids eventually that go through sports. So when we're talking about creating – you know, giving athletes ownership, uh, developing confidence, good communication, the right conditions, whether they're physical, emotional, social, uh, uh, you know, long-term athlete development, things like that. These are just as applicable to coaches as they are, as they are to parents. And since most people read things through both lenses, um, it, it became a very popular coaching book as well but it wasn't written specifically for the coach. There was a lot of coaching things that weren't, was not in there, which is why I wrote every moment matters last year. Right. And then when you look at that, one of the questions I have, you know, um, that I've wrestled with because, you know, you mentioned you worked with a, with a club program in Bend, Oregon and, and still do, right. You still coach at the, yep. at the yeah. club level. Um, and uh, um, there's this kind of balance of, you're seeing more from my experience, we're seeing more, I want to call it for lack of a better term, professionalization of youth sports coaches. And there's, there's a lot of great in that in terms of what you talk about, even in your second book of training and, and understanding motivation and how kids work and that sort of thing. And then there's the other side of, 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 you know, I've talked to TJ Buchanan quite a bit and he was on this podcast talking about giving sports back to the rec programs and letting local rec programs have, have a, a place in the community again. And so what is the balance in your opinion of, of, you have volunteer parent coaches versus a, you know, signing your kid up for a program that has maybe professional coaches who aren't 
parents at all, even of their own kids. They're young, maybe college age or 30 something coaches who are, are really, really good, but they're not the volunteer parent. Like, is there, is there a right answer? Is it just striking the balance? What's your thoughts on that? Well, each community is different, right? And each program is, is, is different. And, 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 and you can't have a $80 a season program and then hire a bunch of professional, well-trained coaches because you don't have any money to pay for it, right? Mm-hmm. In other countries where they have a ministry of sport and the federal government funds local sporting opportunities because they don't have sports in schools, so they give it to local sport clubs. Yeah, now you can have this, but th- this isn't in the United States. So really, I-, I think it's finding the balance. But in the grand scheme of things, if you're up here on one end of the spectrum with you know, professional club, pro- you know, quote professional coaches, because I put it in quotes because most coaches don't act like professionals, Right. Well, what, what, what makes you professional getting a paycheck? I don't think so. Right. Being a professional is, is about uh, adhering to certain qualities and standards and constantly developing yourself and being held accountable and doing continued education. And I meet a lot of people who call them who make a living from coaching who aren't very professional. Right. Mm -hmm. And then if on the other end of the spectrum is a, um, a volunteer, being a volunteer isn't an excuse for not being professional about doing that thing. Mm -hmm. And this is a mistake that a lot of organizations make, I think, is that they treat their volunteers based on, oh my God, we're so glad to have a warm body. Let's not ask anything of them. And this is a huge, huge mistake. And this is why we lose so many children to sport because we have well-intentioned volunteers who don't get trained. They don't understand anything about the children in front of them. And then, you know, so what did they draw upon? Oh, wow. You know, when I was 18, what did my uh, youth football coach do? Oh, let's run some laps to our eight-year-olds, right? We're going to get tough. We're going to get fit. And they know nothing about the physiology, the social, emotional needs of eight-year-olds. So they're running a practice like they did when they were 18 and wondering why it doesn't work, right? And wondering why half the kids don't come back next year. And so I always use the example, you know, my, my dad, my dad was a New York city firefighter and he got injured. And um, so he wasn't allowed to be on the New York force anymore, but we moved to long Island. He was a volunteer firefighter for like 55 years. Right. Mm. And every month he would go to training and when he got, you know, and then he was the chief of the department and chief of the department meant at least five nights a week, the alarm would go off at 2 AM and he'd get up and he'd go to calls and he spent, you know, 10, 20 hours a week as a volunteer firefighter. And, and then when he couldn't go to fires anymore, then he taught firefighting to the new volunteers. Now, what if we treated our volunteer firefighters like our coaches? Oh, you know what? You don't have to learn to use the hose. It's cool. (laughs) Right. No, don't worry about learning how to drive the truck. Right. Not only would they die, but more houses would burn down. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, we, we have examples of volunteers who go above and beyond. And I think we need a, a world of youth sports where our volunteers are treated well, treated with respect, but given the resources and tools to succeed and held to a high standard because you're working with children. Like what could be more important than that? Mm-hmm. 
I think that's an awesome analogy, John, of, of a volunteer firefighter. Of, of you're right, we don't we hold them to the same standard as a professional firefighter because because of the importance of what they're doing and the same is true for coaching the importance of what you're doing is, is raising a kid is developing a kid is being a teacher and a caretaker of that kid um and you know so that question was kind of aimed at the uh, structural side of it in terms of how are we you know ensuring we're training even the volunteer coaches uh and my my other question that i wrote down specifically again you know I, your, your new book is what's top of mind for me. Um, but you talk about the self-awareness of coaches too. And I, this became real for me when I started coaching middle school across last year is when I first started coaching at, at a middle school in Washington, DC. And I, I showed up to that first, you know, you, you mentioned in this example of, you know, the coach who shows up and says, well, we're going to do laps because that's what I did. So I show up to my first practice and it's an about a 45 minute hour drive for me to get to the school. And so I'm not, I'm not just saying this to you. This is the truth. I, I would listen to way of champions podcast on the way to practice and and i uh i so i got all these ideas in my head of how i want to win practice and i show <laughs> up and the kids are coming out and i never thought of how i'm going to start practice and so in my head i was like well i guess we'll just do some stretching we'll do a lap around the field we'll stretch and then we'll do line drills and my first thought was like i don't know if that's the right way to do it. Like, I don't know, I haven't run this by, uh, I haven't I haven't looked through the, the, you know, US Lacrosse does a great job of, mm -hmm. of putting out their guidelines for their, their uh, lacrosse athlete development model. And so I hadn't run it by that. And I found myself kind of stuck with, well, I don't wanna just do what I've always done because that's what I'm trying to stop doing. And, and that I remember sharing that with the other coaches I was with and they looked at me like I was a, a nut, like just trust yourself and do some line drills, who cares? And, and, but I was really intent on saying like, no, I wanna, I wanna evaluate how we're doing this and make sure we're doing it right. And so that took a certain level of self-awareness to say, I'm willing to, I love the coaches I was raised with. They're not wrong, they're not bad people. And by me doing it differently, it's just acknowledging that maybe there's a different way to do it. And so how do you, you've talked about this before of, you know, when you were a young coach, you know, you, you look back at some of the things you did and how do you get a, a young, fresh out of college coach to have the self-awareness to be open-minded to, to seeing a lot of this stuff? Because not everybody is open-minded to reevaluating the way we coach. Yeah, totally. And I come across coaches in my speaking all the time who have like, oh, you know, I've done it, you know, this way always. Why would I change? And, you know, it's just none of them are really ever successful, mm. <laughs> right? Like, it's not like, you know, it's the ones who, who have continued sustained success are the ones who are always adapting and always moving forward. And, and they're not changing their, their core principles of well, what's it supposed to feel like here every day. But what they are adapting is to the needs of the game and the needs of, of the kids who are in front of them. And um, so, you know, my wife always says in, in, in medicine, right? She's like, you know, we, we used to give you a shot of whiskey and pull your tooth, but we don't do that anymore, right? <laughs> right? So, so come on, like, just look at stuff and be like, you know, maybe there's a better way. And, and so your, your point to how do we take young coaches? And, and th I think that's when they're most potentially most open. And it's such a great opportunity to do it because 
they're still connected to their athlete experience in one way. But the problem is, and I think lacrosse might be a sport that struggles with this more than most, but certainly soccer does is, oh, we hire this coach because he, you know, played at John Hopkins or he, you know, played at Syracuse or whatever. And, and now it's like, well, he played at Syracuse. So he's qualified to be a coach, but Mm -hmm. playing and coaching are two really, really different things. And, um, and, and this idea that because you played, you know how to coach anyone who's coached long enough knows that that's just not true. Right. It's one thing to be able to do it. It's another thing to be able to teach it. And so my experience as a young coach was, very frustrated with people who weren't like me, who weren't dedicated, who weren't focused, who weren't super competitive and, and, and work hard and who didn't learn like I learned, right. Who didn't learn the things the way that I learned them. And, and so that was the biggest, I I think that's the biggest challenge. Now, one of the things when, when TJ was running us lacrosse um, I used to say to him, and I've said this to other sports organizations, what I think they should do because now we're able to give coaching 101 and 102 deliver a lot of that online. Why aren't we allowing all our high school age kids to start taking coaching while they're still playing when they're in high school and introduce them to coaching education and make them start thinking about a, I think it'll make them a better player, but, B, then when they're 25 and they decide they want to coach, they'll go, you know, I took a cool coaching course back when I was 15. Um, it actually helped. Like, cause how many times do we take a course or, or we sign up for a webinar or go, ah, oh, I wasn't, you know, uh, do I have to do this? You're like, oh, I'm really glad I was there. So if we create a great course and we teach them something and show them that and tell them from a young age, coaching and, and playing are not the same thing then I think we'll have more people who are open to, hey, I'm going to coach, so I need someone to teach me how to do this. And that might be a huge first step. But then as a club, right, you should have a methodology. You should have a a style. Um, I'm working with my local club here in Oregon of implementing this this year because it was like, here's the interesting thing. You know, I can give an example from the soccer world. If you just make the argument, which I think is a fair one, that all the youth coaches at Manchester United or Barcelona um, are more qualified than um, the local youth elite FC club in your neighborhood, right? I think it's fair to make that argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, so they, they have more experience, they're more qualified coaches, and yet they don't get to show up and do whatever they want. They have a methodology. They have a curriculum. They have, this is what we're working on and training this week. This is the phase of play. This is what you will teach. Now you will bring your authentic self to it and your passion and everything, but this is what you're teaching. Then you come to the U S and you have elite FC that says uh, that every coach goes, don't tell me what to do. I played the game. Right. And they do whatever the heck they want. And so you don't really have a club. You have this disjointed group of individuals. Um, So I think if I'm running a local lacrosse club and I'm hiring young coaches, I'm saying, this is what you're teaching. And, And I'm helping them discover like, why do you, why do you coach? What's your purpose? What's your authentic self? What are you going to bring to training every day? And here's the phase of play that we're teaching today. 
right? This is what we're going to be teaching. And I want you to teach this in the best way Bobby can teach this, right? But you don't get to go off plan, Bobby, and make up whatever the heck you want, right? Because you're part of this club now. And this is what we don't do well here. Yeah, what I love about that, I, I, uh, I interviewed, um, her name's Charlotte Healy. She is um, at Manchester United and a part of running the women's and girl development soccer program there. And, and her task was, you know, take the, what you just said, we have a culture of what it means to be a part of Manchester United. We want to build a girl and women development program that mirrors that culture. And we want you to bring Charlotte to it. Like we're hiring you from another program to bring your skills and to, and to your point, it was, I mean, we talked for over an hour on this podcast about almost the specifics of mm-hmm. what they do. And she knows the specifics because to your point, they're very intentional about what they're teaching and, and what they want by a certain age, each girl to be able to do skill wise, but also the mental toughness, the grit, the mentality, the attitude, yeah, the character, it all yeah, yeah. yeah, the character. Um, and so I think that is very important. I think you're right. It's not, I'm a part of the lacrosse community and I'll, I'll affirm what you said, you know, at least, and I live in the Baltimore DC area too. So that impacts my, my lens. Um, but you're absolutely right. There's a lot of camps and clubs and teams out there where the, the, the qualification is basically that the player played at a high level or still does play at a high level. Mm-hmm. You know, they play in the pros. And so that makes them a coach. And, I, I was influenced very early on. I was the sports and spirit day director of a summer camp in college. And um, the main, when I got hired, uh, I was a counselor at this camp prior to, and it's, it's, this is like a, it wasn't a sports camp. It was really a very traditional summer camp uh, kind of like, uh, you know, kids are doing all sorts of different stuff. And my second year there, the director asked if I'd be the sports director. And he said, you know, a big thing is you're going to have to coach baseball because baseball is our main sport here. And I said, I haven't played baseball since I was five years old. And our camp was kids from, I think, basically probably second grade to fifth grade. And most of them had never played baseball before. So I was just going to be their introduction to the sport. Like if you really wanted high level baseball coaching, you didn't come to our camp. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he says to me, he goes, I'll like, I have the utmost faith in you that you can learn how to coach baseball to mm-hmm. these kids. And I'm not hiring you for your technical ability. I'm hiring you for, for all those other things that you and I've already talked about. And, and so I, I YouTube, I read books, like I studied how to coach baseball. And the funny part of it is number one, the, ki- the kids loved camp. Uh, uh, more kids wanted to be a part of baseball than ever before. I'm not just bragging on myself. It was, I was a young kid seeing the power of how you coach confidence and character and culture more than the other things. And also mm-hmm. the kids just want to have fun. And then the second side of things, I had parents who were baseball players mm-hmm. who asked me to coach their kids after after hours in baseball Mm -hmm. because they said that I've never seen someone be like, so like technical focus. Like you are just like the way you're supposed to teach, you are teaching. And I said to them, I go, it's cause I didn't play. Like I don't have any bad habits. I'm literally just learning what you're supposed to do. And, and I'm not sitting here saying I should be a baseball coach, but that was a really cool early experience to show a, how much the other intangibles play into coaching and B you know, it's not necessarily how high a level you played. It's, mm-hmm. it's, are you, are you developing yourself as a coach as mm-hmm. well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I heard, 
Pete Carroll has talked many times about when people had to get into coaching. He's like, you know, when I was 13, my high school coach said, come work at my camp. Mm-hmm. Right. And he's like, and I worked at his camp and did that and then played college football. And then when I couldn't make it at, you know, when I couldn't make it as a pro, I got a grad assistant spot at, I think university of Pacific or something like that. But he just talked about, I had been coaching since I was 13, never thinking I want to be a coach. But I was picking stuff up. I was learning. I was I, I was I, I was learning about coaching, and so, um, you know, maybe my high school coach saw something in me back then of like this guy, you know, is probably not going to be a Hall of Fame defensive back, but he could be a pretty good coach. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this is this is the thing: is how do we sort of do that pattern interrupt with athletes to say? okay, now you're coaching. It's two different things. Cause here's the thing. A lot of, you know, I, I know you're a Joe Ehrman fan and obviously mm-hmm. he's from your area as well. And you know, Joe's whole principle in inside out coaching is to be a better coach. You have to be a better you, mm-hmm. right? To be a better coach, you have to be a better you. So many coaches have never come to terms with the end of their athlete career. They didn't make it. They, they, they wish that someone did something different for them there. They hated their coaches or whatever it is. So, so many people get into coaching and they have, they, they still think they're a player. And, and those two mentalities don't really jive well together or they have, or they start living vicariously through their players because they have unfulfilled ambitions as a coach. And I would say that I was the same. I, that's me in a nutshell. And so they never do the inner work to let go of John, the athlete and become John, the coach. And I think we could, as senior coaches, hiring young coaches, um, help them go through that process, help them recognize that because the fact is, right. If you're a professional lacrosse player and you're asked to coach a bunch of 12 year olds, the first couple days, they're going to think it's really cool that you are just such an amazing player. But if you start treating them disrespectfully, if you don't encourage them, if you're really negative, um, if you're, you know, screaming at them at the wrong time, if you're not making them better, pretty soon they couldn't give a crap how good a player you are, right? They're just going to walk away or they're going to end up hating you. And, and so, um, you know, your resume might get your foot in the door, but it's not going to keep you there. And it's not going to inspire your athletes beyond week one. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the same is true. Even if you're, as you're telling that story, I'm thinking, I remember playing club lacrosse growing up and we did have a coach who was a professional player. And I remember that first day of practice, we were all excited. And, and by even to this day, and I remember by the end of the, like the end of the summer, I don't remember what team he played for. I don't remember where he played in college. I don't mm-hmm. remember any of that. And we loved him too, but we loved him for other reasons. Not like you're right. That it was a cool intro to us that he played there. But other than that, I couldn't tell you where he played or, or, or what his accolades were. And so it's just not as important to kids as we might think of this. Uh, no, exactly. They get over that really fast. Yeah. You mentioned the, I love the, I love Joe Herman. I love the, to be a better coach, you got to be a better you. Um, which made me think of, I wanted to get back to. So um, when I think of that and the work you do, I always think of Jerry as well. How did you meet Jerry? How did you guys get connected and, and talk a little about the work you do? 
Yeah. So let's talk about firefighting for the second time this podcast. Like yeah. my, you know, <clears throat> Jerry, when I wrote Changing the Game, um, started the blog one day, I just got a call out of the blue from this guy, Jerry Lynch. And, you know, I, I had no idea who he was. I, I had never read any of his books, anything like that. But he just said, hey, I've been in this space a long time. And, um, you know, I love your book. I think it's awesome. I love the work. And so we started talking and turns out he's a New Yorker and his dad was a New York City firefighter. And, you know, so we just like really hit it off and said, let's stay in touch. And at that point, he was living half the year in Boulder, Colorado. And I, I, I was starting to do a lot of work in, Boulder, in in Colorado. And so I was heading there for a trip. And I said, hey, let me drive up to Boulder. And it would be just be great to put a face to the name. And so we went up and he, you know, so Jerry, so Jerry's, I think he just turned 78 or 79, um, just his birthday. And, um, but he's still an amazing athlete. I mean, six days a week, he goes for a two hour bike ride or an hour run, right? He, he's unbelievable. And he was one yeah. of the best, you know, age group record holder in the marathon in the U S for a while and stuff. And so, um, so of course we don't sit around the desk or have coffee. He's like, let's go for a hike. And so we go for a hike <laughs> And, um, on this hike, we, we hash out these, you know, sort of like, you know, it would be fun to work together. What could we do together? And, um, Jerry, you know, had at that point, probably 12 books and all this knowledge and all these connections and coaches that he'd worked with from Steve Kerr to Anson Dorrance to Cindy Timschel to Gary Gate and, all these people that, that he had worked with who had had great success as coaches. And he, uh, he's like, but I want to reach more people. And I, I said, you know, Jerry, I, I have all this research and this knowledge of like understanding how to coach, but you know, and, and it's really aligned with you and you've got 30 NCA titles to say this stuff works and I have the research to back it up and I know how to reach people. So we're like, well, let's do something together. So we hashed out this idea of what if we have a conference um, and we bring people in and we talk about what, you know, transformational coaching would be the giant umbrella and leadership and how to build culture. And so we hash out this thing on this hike and I'm like, what's the name of the hike here, Jerry? And he's like, I, you know, I don't know. I've lived in Boulder 30 years, no idea what the trail this is. <laughs> so I find this trail sign at the bottom and it says Sanitas, S-A-N-I-T-A-S. I'm like, I wonder what the word Sanitas means. So we go back to the car, we get back down and Sanitas turns out to be, it's Mount Sanitas and it turns out to be a Latin word for um, soundness of mind, soundness of body, correctness of style. I'm like, holy crap, that's what we just talked about for like two and a half hours. Um, I'm like, the universe is telling us we need to do this. So uh, that was back in you know, probably 2014. And this summer would have been our fifth conference together. And, you know, we do the podcast together and um, we do a lot of consulting work with organizations together or separately uh, as well. And uh, we're going to yeah. do a book, book together here soon. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, 
I think I'd love to know another just selfish question I've, I've wanted to ask you, and I think it'd be helpful for listeners is, you know, so you, you put this conference together with Jerry and, um, you know, obviously, as you talk, going back to, um, you know, a better you, when you, you become a better you, you become a better coach. So what, I mean, maybe it's a pitch for your conference that again, is probably, you pushed it to next year, right? This year. Yeah. We just postponed year. this one, which was okay. supposed to be here in about two weeks. Um, okay. we posted to 21. Yeah. So of a coach, because I don't know the answer to this either, because here's my first time talking with you about it. Um, why should a coach go to the conference? Talk about the conference a bit. Well, I think, again, a lot of coaches feel this sort of this, this pull in youth sports or high school sports right now to be a certain way, which is very transactional, right? You teach the skills mm -hmm. and you collect your money. And Bobby, if you don't cut it, no problem. We'll replace you and we'll find someone who will. And, and they're not happy with it. And, and they really feel like, wow, there's a better way to reach players. But where do you learn that, right? You go and do your coaching courses and they talk about periodization and, and, and very technical, tactical stuff. And maybe they pay some lip service to psychology, but there's no why behind, well, why am I teaching this at this age? Why am I teaching that? Um, and, and then if you also talk to these most successful coaches, like uh, actually like Cindy Timschel was supposed to be our third presenter this summer, right? So there you go. Eight national titles, winning as lacrosse coach of all time, hall of fame lacrosse and field hockey coach. I mean, Cindy's clearly one of the greatest coaches in America. And, mm -hmm. and um, so she was going to come teach too. Well, what's Cindy doing? Cause she doesn't have access to different drills than you do. Right. So what's the secret? And she would tell you culture, right? Like how, you know, what, you know, a win the day culture. And, and this is what Steve Kerr talks about. This is what Anson talks about. So all the best coaches who have sustained success talk about culture comes first, but then where do you go learn that? Mm -hmm. Right. So we created a program of like, here's, here's your steps to learn that. And that first year, Bobby, like we were in, you know, we're like, well, let's just do it in Boulder. We had a, a school there that Jerry knew the AD who's like, yeah, we'll give you the school for free. So it's not going to cost us anything to put on the conference really, except for food and materials and our time. We're like, you know what, if no one signs up, at least we'll be in Boulder, right? Mm -hmm. We'll we'll have a good time. And we got like 50, 60 people the first year, right? And it was really cool. And it was like a range of people from like a local house league hockey coach going, you know, I'm not even sure if I should be here to like an AD from the middle East to like, um, you know, we had a Olympic sports psychologist. We had uh, a guy, Kevin Kirk, who's like one of the top golf coaches in the world works with like multiple Ryder cup players and stuff like that, mm -hmm. who also had connected with our work and said, I want this. Um, and so it was just this great room of people. And we were so energized. We're like, oh, we got to keep doing this. Um, and so like this summer was poised to be like a, a really big event. So we'd gone from this little tiny school in Boulder and we'd moved it around a little bit to we were going to be at the U.S. Olympic Training Center because they came mm -hmm. to us last year and were like, this is what we need to layer into our coaching. We'd like you to come to Colorado Springs. Here's yeah. the facility um, do this here. Cause this fits with our quality coaching framework. So it's really blow, blown up to that. And, um, 
and and I think the people who come are like, this is what I was looking for a permission to coach a certain way, but also a roadmap to how to do it. And like 39 championship banners to give me the confidence that this stuff works. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really cool. And, and so what we ended up doing, sorry to rant on, but like when no, we had great. to cancel it um, this spring, we decided we're like, well, let's try to do like an online uh, six week live coach mentorship thing. And so we did one that started, I think, in the beginning of April. And we're like, well, maybe we get some people to show up. Who knows? And we got like 280. And then we just did another one, which tonight is week four. And, you know, we got like another 250. So we got like 530 people who said, yeah, I'll show up every week and talk about leadership and talk about culture and talk about mindfulness. And so I I really feel like there's this movement in coaching Mm -hmm. to do this and to teach it online is one thing, but to put 150, 200 people in a room where you feel each other's energy. um, And it's a pretty powerful event. We do some really moving stuff at the end. And I, you know, I don't know, I've been to a lot of coaching conferences as a speaker, as a presenter and as an attendee. And there's not a lot of coaching conferences where like at the end, there's like people in tears saying like, this has changed my life forever. Mm -hmm. Um, And you don't get that by like learning, you know, you know, the zone press. Right. Right. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, even the online versus, you know, in-person reality um, ever since I even used to do these podcasts on uh, in person and, and I'll, I'll, continue to do so as best I can. Um, certainly if there's, you know, I guess like yourself, if we're not going to be in the same place, I'd happily do it via Zoom, but there's just something different about, I think, sitting in person with someone and even workshops. I mean, I just before you and I hopped on, I had a workshop with a soccer team I work with and um, it's been good, right? It's been great. Like we're learning a lot. We're talking about some good things. Last week, we, we, talked about leadership in a very real and honest way. And we had some emotions coming up there. So that stuff can happen online. And I've had a lot of folks ask me, you know, how is this time going to change and pivot your work and your career and what you do? And and maybe you have a different answer than myself, but for me, it's like, you know, it's opened my mind a little bit to the connection with a team that I can have over a zoom type platform that maybe I would have not been open to before. And I'm still getting together with teams and coaches in person. Mm. I'm still doing, doing the in-person workshops and the in-person trainings, the in-person conferences, because there is something different about that. Um, especially when we're talking of areas of vulnerability, we're talking about insecurities, we're growing as a person and not just intellectually, but emotionally. There's just something different about in person. People are social beings and, and, and online will never replace interaction will never Mm. replace person to person in terms of the power it can have. Um, Mm. But it can still be very, very powerful. Mm -hmm. And and I'm in the same boat, right? I work with some college teams and we're trying to stay motivated and get ready for a fall season that might or might not happen. And, you know, I feel like some, you know, some of those sessions uh, I've had to bring some emotion to it, get them reattached with why am I training endlessly by myself to get ready for a season that might not happen. Right. That's a hard thing to do. 
well, that was last week. I was, that's exactly what I was trying to do. And, and, and uh, one of the players went to unmute herself and share. And she goes, hold on. And you could hear her choking up. And she, she blocked out her video and blocked out her sound because she was starting to cry. And it was a good cry. It wasn't bad. But I, I was, it was the first time ever. Like, I have been doing this for 10 years. So from a place of facilitation, I know how to make sure that this is all done in a healthy, powerful, effective way. And when she shut off her video and sound, it was the first time I was like, what do I do about this? Like, I, I just want to make sure she's okay. And so yeah. I said that, I go, can anybody text her and just say, like, you know, I, I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable, but we want to make sure you're okay. Yeah. <laughs> and so she came back after the text and said like, Oh my gosh, no worries. Like I'm fine. But it was a sense of like embarrassed to be the first, any, any group I work with, nobody wants to be the first person to cry. And I shouldn't say yeah. nobody, but that's often. And so she became the first person to cry. And then other players did too, with what we were talking about. But when she shut off her video and sound, I was like, what? is happening mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. no it's totally just, it's and it's, that's yeah. the thing is like all right we're, we're rewriting the script in a way mm -hmm. like oh like how, how do i how do i deal with that because the work needs to be done and again because coaches are not daily with their athletes and now you're coming in as this third party you have no idea what a kid's mental state is after eight ten eleven weeks at home you don't know what's going on in that house you don't know what's going on in their, in their life. Um, so that it's really, really tough right now to, to, to be careful and, and, and keep that connection. And, and, but yeah, like when that happens, like, yeah, I'd be like, Oh God, start texting. <laughs> what the heck just happened? Yeah. It's Make scary. Sure okay. yeah. yeah. So one of the questions I had while you were talking about your conference is, you know, you've done this podcast where you're interviewing all these great coaches and professionals in the world of coach development and athlete development. You have this conference where you bring together these coaches, you're on these calls with hundreds of coaches. Um, what is the most profound thing you have learned in practicing this work? So you've done the research now when you practice it and you, I have to imagine at the conference, you're learning stuff too from these coaches that show up. Um, what are some of the things that stand out to you that you've learned from, from the coaches that have come to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I I have to be cognizant as well as that. Hey, we're it's kind of like a a Facebook feed, right? We're we're clicking on certain links, and so we're going to attract a certain type of player, or type of coach, or whatever yeah. type of information that can become this self fulfilling prophecy. So I'm always challenging myself to also look outside of that, right, and into something that's challenging for me. And we can talk about that later. But yeah. certainly for me, what 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 I've learned and what's been reinforced time and time again is again this idea that culture comes first, and also that it if that burnout happens when you get disconnected from the base principles that drive you to coach, right? Answering that, like, why do I coach? Why do I coach? If you get too far from that, that's when you're like, oh, it's just not worth it anymore. Um, mm -hmm. And so what's been really fun for me, and I think what people appreciate about, say, our podcast or Change the Game Project or you know, I have a good friend in England, Stuart Armstrong, uh, called the talent equation who he works with UK coaching is that we're both still coaching grassroots, right? I work with 12 and 13 year old boys right now in, in soccer, he's coaching, I think cricket or rugby. I forget what Stuart's coaching now. So we talk about this on the podcast 
because that's the real world that most people live in. Like, it's nice to be like, okay, Roy Williams, how are you coaching your team at North Carolina? People are like, oh, it'd be nice if I had, you know, three seven footers on the roster too. Right. But what am I supposed to do? So when I'm like, okay, here's like the reality of working with 12 year olds. Right. And, and before the boys I coach now, I was coaching middle school girls. So, you know, that was a lot of conversations publicly about um, managing personalities and making sure everyone got along and all this sort of stuff, you know, well, whereas the boys, it's sort of like teaching them about, you know, that everything that pops into your head shouldn't necessarily come immediately out of your mouth. Right. <laughs> and, and um, so it's just really different. And so I have gotten to take some of the stuff that I've learned from our guest and try to layer it in. And, and the biggest difference in me as a coach, as a 48 year old, than as a 28 year old was my, my true belief that players are not empty vessels, right? That they have a lot of stuff in them. And our job as a coach is to draw it out mm-hmm. and to give them the, and that, and that teaching is about giving them the tools so that they know what good feels like and they can pull that out of themselves under pressure, right? Mm -hmm. Because who cares what I taught them if it doesn't hold up under the pressure of the game, right? They Mm -hmm. haven't learned anything. They're not getting better. And so 28-year-old John was like, well, I taught it, so you should have learned it. And now I'm much more likely to say, well, if they haven't learned it, what what did I do wrong? Mm -hmm. Because I know it's in them. I know they're capable of learning this and then also paying attention to what did I miss today? Where was an opportunity to connect that I missed? Where was a kid that I didn't give a little word of encouragement to which kid did I, and it's not just about praise, but um, did I not affirm? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, and just tell them, Hey, I saw you, I saw you out there today. And, and so that's what I'm much, much better at now is, is just those moments of, uh, of connecting with kids on an individual, 30 seconds. I saw you. And if I missed it at practice, an email afterwards, you know, yeah. to their parents, safe sport compliant, <laughs> right. Yeah. But, but to yeah. their parents of like, Hey, I didn't get a chance after practice to say, you know, I know you're a little bit frustrated, but, um, I, I've really seen so much in, improvement in you and, uh, you know, keep working, keep working. Yeah, I'd say two things on that. Um, number one, just that constant foot. When we teach leadership development, whether it's, you know, when the work Ryan and I do in the corporate space is much more focused on some of those kind of leadership development principles. And a lot of it is this belief that we try to instill in folks that, you know, the, the onus on communication is the communicator. If the person hearing you doesn't understand what you're saying, doesn't hear you, isn't paying attention, uh, walks away confused, you tell them to do something, they do it wrong you take responsibility for that. That doesn't mean it always was your fault. Mm -hmm. And you take responsibility for that because that lends itself to a solution. I'm a part of the problem or part of the solution reality. And so that's what Mm -hmm. you just said with coaching, right? If your players aren't getting it, it's on you as a coach to say, how do I coach better? How do I reach them better? How do I understand them better? And then that lends itself to your second point of connection, Mm -hmm. which that is the number one thing I've learned from doing this podcast is how many coaches that are great coaches are so intentional about their connections with players, Um, texting them to very specifically say, here's something you really did awesome today. And I want to again, celebrate you for it. And again, to your point, you know, 
I see that at the youth level. And I was interviewing um, Joe Segula, who's a head volleyball coach at UNC. And that's what he talked about was how intentionally he's about connection. And then I was on a call a couple weeks ago with Justin Sua, who is uh, the Tampa Bay, I think he's now with the Rays, uh, mm -hmm. mental performance mental, coach. Yeah. Yeah, and he talked about that. He goes, even with these MLB players, it's I text them after the game and say, I really want to acknowledge here's what you did really well. And he goes, even these guys love to hear it. And so it's this stuff that transcends age. It's just being a human. We, we want to be heard. We want to be seen. We want to be connected with. Um, I love That was one of the first things you put in, in your new book of, of this concept that, you know, um, there it is, the value of connecting with players and their families, right? Like that's so much a part of coaching is that connecting with players and their families. Um, you've kind of touched on that, but I'd like to go off on that. How do you, how do you prioritize that? Not just the players, but also the families making sure that connecting with them is a part of your culture. How do you make sure that happens? It's hugely important. It's funny, like tonight in my course, like that's what I'm teaching is like, how do we incorporate parents into the culture? Because mm -hmm. they're, they're influencers, Right. And, and it's funny you mentioned Joe Segula because like he's taken this online class. So there's a guy who's been a head volleyball yeah. coach of what, 30 years at UNC. Yeah. And he's like online taking this class, showing up every week to get better. Right. How yeah. many 25 year old volleyball coaches are like, I'm not going to do that silly stuff. Right. right. So there you go. Um, you know, but but here's the thing. Um, we as coaches have to think about. Um, if we're trying to create this culture, there's a lot of influences outside of our bubble that are influencing our athletes. It can be their friends. It can be the community they live in, but it's certainly going to be a parent or, or parents. And so uh, a parent who understands the culture and understands the plan can be your greatest ally in this but the parent who doesn't get it can be your greatest adversary and you can coach fantastically and give the best little talk after a really heartbreaking loss. And it's all undone in five minutes in the car, right? By the mm -hmm. dad or the mom, usually the dad who, who just doesn't get it. Mm -hmm. And so if those parents are having an influence on your team's trust or lack thereof, on the athlete's belief in their coach or lack thereof and the athlete's belief in themselves or lack thereof, why wouldn't you teach them and give them the tools to help you? Right. And this, and this is still a, you ask any college coach today, they have to do that mm. right? because so many parents grew up in this club world of watching every practice, watching every game, talking to their kid, and you know, then they come to the college game. Why aren't you playing? I think you're better than that kid. And all of a sudden, yeah, coach must not know what she's doing. Or uh, you know, God, my my team. I don't trust my teammates anymore, right? And these parents are thinking, I'm just making my kid feel better. But actually, what yeah. they're doing is they're they're chipping away at the trust of the group. So yeah. one of the things that I, as a practitioner, know is that I, I, you know, I've coached in North Carolina and in Colorado a little bit and in Vermont and Ann Arbor and in Bend, Oregon, right? These are communities where there's some highly involved parents, right? Well-educated university communities, highly involved parents. And I can honestly say I've never, I've never finished with a team that had a bad parent group. 
I started with teams that had a parent group that didn't get it right. That really could make my life miserable, but very quickly I rolled into like, Oh, okay. Let me open the door. Cause if you think about it, Bobby, like, you know, if your kid was failing math and, and you called the teacher and said, how do I get my kid extra help? And the teacher said, you don't call me. You don't email (laughs) me. Your kid's failing. They need to suck it up. Right. Like that's not going to help. And that's never going to fly. Right. That's never going to fly in a school. So why do we think as coaches that when a kid's struggling with playing time or their confidence that we're going to say, Hey, mm -mm, you know, you're not allowed to talk to me about your kid's performance. Like, give me a break. That's just Mm -hmm. crazy. And then when people tell me to do that, I'm like, how does that work for you? Right now, I'm not saying that there's not parents who have completely lost the plot. All right. But the vast majority of parents, if we engage with them, if we teach them, this is how you can help. If we set appropriate boundaries, like, no, don't meet me in the parking lot after the game. If I lay out my philosophy and, and what matters to me and I adhere to that, then, then there's very few problems. And then what usually happens is then I get the call from the parent who says, Hey, you might not know this, but you know, one kid on the team is being really, really mean to other kids on the team. My, my son or my daughter has been super upset after practice because so-and-so is saying this. Now, you don't hear this, right? You've got your eyes on 20 kids. You don't see every interaction, but that's really important to know. And it's an opportunity to fix the culture. It's an opportunity to teach that young player about their influence, either positive or negative. And, um, and, and I would never know that if a, parent didn't have the confidence to call me but the biggest thing is understanding trust right and Mm -hmm. this goes back to our 25 year old coach john o'sullivan the 25 year old coach thought trust was all about ability yeah i was a division one player i was a pro player so you should trust me then i Mm -hmm. had kids and recognized like you know the most important thing in my world my child um, why would i trust someone just because they can kick a ball far right? Mm-hmm. Or, or whatever. So trust is about connection. Trust is about walking the walk. It's about being dependable, being believable, being vulnerable. Um, and if, if parents see you doing all those things, then they're going to trust you. And if they trust you, then when something goes sideways or their kid's a little bit upset or their kid didn't play as much as they thought they should, they're far more likely to call you up in a rational way and say, Hey, Bobby, what's going on? Like what's, what's happening in this situation? Because I know my kid loves you and I, I know you love these kids and you work your tail off for them. Right. Versus mm-hmm. if you're this aloof character that doesn't connect with anyone, you know, now what do the parents do? Well, you won't talk to me. So I'm going to go to the AD or I'm going to skip the AD and go to the principal or I'm going to go to the superintendent. And now you look like an idiot because the first time that you hear there's a problem. It's coming from the superintendent or a board member. Right. Yeah. And it was yeah. a little tiny problem and now it's a big thing and it costs you your job. Yeah. And that's a very, obviously I'm sure you have a tremendous amount of experience with that being such a real scenario. And you know, my, my community where I grew up, um, there were definitely coaches who had rules of what you just said. They had a rule of you don't talk to me about playing time. And so therefore I remember parents going to the AD for certain sports and saying, they AD saying, why are you calling me? They go, well, because I can't call the coach. They've set up a rule that yeah. I can't call. 
And you're right. The intent is to, the intent of the coach I have to imagine is to eliminate drama and conflict. And really what they're doing is increasing it because you conflict is healthy. Conversation is healthy. That's what we teach teams is to have healthy conflict and discourse. And so create, and when you trust each other, you're allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I'll just uh, affirm everything you said. I can't agree more with it. And what do you do if you have a, a, a player who even after all this, a player who fits the culture of the team and their parents still doesn't get on board. What happens in that scenario? I mean, you have to look at age, right? If this is a high school senior who's accepted the role of being the sixth man or something like that, right, on your basketball team and uh, has embraced that and the parent hasn't, um, you probably have to encourage that 18-year-old to talk to their dad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe would you like me to be there for that conversation? Right. Because a lot of kids get it right. Like they're realistic about their ability. They know how they do in practice. Right. Number two, if you have that parent who doesn't get it, you know, you're like, you know, have you watched practice? Right. Right? Have you actually come and seen practice? You think your kid's some stud. Look look at them going through the motions in practice. Right. This is their performance. Right. So, you know, and they don't know, they don't see that because I don't know any coaches who, who are like, Oh yeah. You know, this kid, phenomenal player, best kid, high character. He's not going to play. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, they're, they're, you know, this doesn't happen. This only happens in some parents' mind. So there's usually something that's not right. You know, one of my great lessons when I was a freshman in high school, probably, or sophomore and, you know, I had so many good players at, at my high school and I was frustrated with my playing time and complaining about it to my dad. And, and my dad said to me, well, like, do you show up early? You know, do you, do you stay after, you know, when practice ends, you got 30 minutes before you catch the, the sports bus home. Do you, do you stay after and, and run a bit more or anything? He's like, I haven't seen you like get up before school and go to the basement and kick a ball against the wall. Mm-hmm. Right. So he's like, so you know what, until you're doing all those things on a daily basis, why would I talk to your coach? You know, cause you're not even doing what you're capable of. Now, if you're doing those things every day and busting your butt and being a great teammate, uh, you know, I might say something to your coach about, Hey, can you recognize this? But if you're not picking up a ball outside of practice, if you're not telling me you're not you're in the best shape of your life, why would I <laughs> why would I right. why would I go to your coach? And and like I, I think this is just uh, such a great lesson for me as a person that has stuck with me all these years of like, you know, before you complain, have you done everything within your power to earn this spot? Right. I love it. And I, I wanted to go back to a comment you made earlier, because this was kind of what you've learned. And like you said, you're in this, uh, at some level, you're right. The people that are attracted to your work, my work, anybody's work at some level are just going to kind of affirm what you're doing because that's why they come to you. Um, what has challenged you the most or what are you currently challenged by or with, or you'd mentioned that that was the language you used of what challenges you. Um, is there something that, that came to mind when you brought that up? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was thinking about, you know, two books that I'm working on now. Um, oh, reading. Uh, Nick Winkleman's new book, The Language of Coaching. Mm-hmm. And then Stephen Rolnick's book um, on uh, 
I think it's called coaching athletes to be their best. It's on motivational interviewing. So how do we use language as coaches that allows them to really feel what, what correct motor skill feels like, um, take ownership of the change they want to make rather than just dictating it to them. And then either, you know, in Winkleman's book, you know, to give them a cue that will help them perform this motor skill in a, in a high pressure environment, right. So that they can draw on it. Like in his book, he talks about working with NFL combine athletes who improve their times, but never ran as fast at the combine as they did in his gym when he worked for Exos. Right. And he's like, because when I was coaching them constantly and fixing stuff, they could do it, but I never gave them the skills to deploy it on their own. Right. And so he's got the, he did a PhD in like linguistics of coaching of like, you know, what type of language works when to give someone the ability to kick a ball or throw a lacrosse ball or, or mm-hmm. sprint quickly or whatever. So to me, that's really fascinating right now. Yeah. Like how can I teach better? How can I give an athlete? Uh, when's the appropriate time to give a cue to help them get better at something. Um, so, you know, I, I've read this and, you know, I'm just getting back out there with my kids now, you know, like thinking about, okay, what's my final word that I say before I do this. And then motivational interviewing is all about, you know, you're coming to me as a player and you're struggling with something instead of just saying, well, Bobby, here's what you're doing wrong. Go out and fix it. I get you to sort of say, well, you know, yeah, like I, I, yeah, I, I really do want to make the team or I really do want to, you know, run my best mile time. Um, so why do you want to do that? And what are some of the ways that you can do that and get you to sort of like come up with the solution yourself? Cause mm-hmm. you're far more likely to own the solution than if I just tell it to you. So, yeah. um, that's things that are sort of outside of my wheelhouse, but I know they'll make me a better coach for the kids that I coach. And I know I, I'm getting stuff from those guys that I can pass on to other coaches that I think will go, Ooh, I need that too. Yeah. Who, what, who's the author of the motivational interviewing book? Uh, Steven, there's four authors, Jonathan Fader and Steven Rolnick, R-O-L-N-I-C-K. I'm trying to get him on my podcast here. Well, I think that's because, you know, when I first um, was trained in, you know, my introduction, a lot of this stuff is when I say 10 years, I've been doing facilitating for 10 years. The last two years, my focus has really been on athletics. But prior to that, it was and and it still is from a place of client base. It's any group that, you know, is willing. It needs team building. I know marketing 101, never say you're for everybody. But if a group calls and they need team building, like we are your folks. And uh, and so I was trained in facilitation early on. and one of the techniques you mentioned, kind of the motivational interviewing, um, was even just, like you said, asking the question, why? And it, there was, I forget what book I read this, and it was years ago, but it was like five whys before you offer your your advice as a facilitator. So you ask mm-hmm. them five, each is kind of like a little kid, right? Why, why, why? Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, the individual is forced to unpack their own, you know, challenge to like you said number one they come to a solution and number two maybe as a coach you know i've seen a lot of coaches will 
get on a player for a bad play, assuming they know why the player did what they did. But in mm-hmm. reality, it's got nothing to do with maybe, again, maybe the coach didn't explain themselves well. Maybe the player has something going on in their life outside of the sport that's impacting them. Uh, maybe the player had an argument with the parent and the parents on the sideline and that's just getting in the player's head. There could be so many things going on that a coach is never going to see on the outside looking in. And so that type of interviewing and questioning is huge in terms of even in the moment, right? We talk a lot about this stuff in terms of practice, but in the moment, being able to coach that player effectively, um, they're a human being first. And that definitely totally. impacts Totally. And, and I think that's the, that's our thing, right? Is like, if, if I can strip away all the things that are blocking them, and, and get them really connected again with, with their purpose, right? Well, why do you want to get better at them? Or why do you want to, you know, like what are ways that you could, well, I could get up before school and, and do this three times a week. Okay, great. Like how, how will you do that? Like, well, how's that going to like get my dad to get me up and take me to the gym or whatever. Right. And it's like, you start, you help them solve their problem because the solutions within them, and then it becomes their idea, not your idea. Mm-hmm. And that's a very mm-hmm. powerful thing. And I love, I love your idea of, you know, five whys before you talk. Um, because um, that's, you know, when they hear their own story, they're more likely to um, agree with your advice because they've told the story, you know, and you're yeah. just filling in the pieces. Yeah. Yeah. And you understand where they're coming from. So I'm, mm-hmm. I wrote that down. I haven't read that one. Yet. I'm going to look up one in the language of coaching sounds really good too. Mm-hmm. Um, here's what I want to do. I've got, um, you know, kind of my last question that I'll ask eventually about 50 cups, but prior to that, a lot of the questions I've asked have come, I just, I have, I read no uh, books on Kindle, so I'll, I'll highlight. And so prior to this interview, I just went back and grabbed the highlights from your first book and from, from your new book. Um, but is there anything you want to say? I think, I would, I'm not trying to, if, if, if someone hasn't read your first book and they listen to this podcast, they've heard about it enough. Um, and, and I hope they grab it if they haven't. Um, but uh, I know we touched on this earlier, but I want to give you an, I gave you an opportunity to say, you know, pitch the conference. Cause I think that's the best way to understand it. Um, so pitch the new book. If someone hasn't picked this up yet, why should they grab it? Well, I think that, you know, the, the big thing is when you're a coach you know, the title of the book is Every Moment Matters. Mm-hmm. And the way that I will sign off the podcast is your influence is never neutral, right? It's either positive or negative. So we as coaches really have to be intentional about our influence every day. And if we're intentional about making sure it's a positive influence, we're going to reach more athletes. We're going to push them in a better direction. Um, and, and so, um, you, you know, one of the quotes I start the book with it was from Terry Steiner, who's the U.S. national team women's wrestling coach, All-American, uh, wrestled under Dan Gable at Iowa, right? Like, you know, Terry is an amazing wrestler himself and his brother. And um, he told me this, this story um, that he shared from someone else that he learned. But he said, what's the difference between um, a coach and an artist? And I was, you know, no idea. He goes, at the end of the day, the artist can throw out his work and start again. And the coach cannot. Mm. And, and that really stuck with me. Right. And so I use that as sort of quote in the beginning of the book, because every moment matters. Like what if today is the day that your athlete shows up ready to learn? Are you going to be on your A game? 
right? This is the responsibility that you've taken on. And so I think in any leadership role, right, whether you're managing a sales team or managing a lacrosse team, this is your job. Every moment matters. You have to be at your best. And so I wanted to write a book that gave people the tools to be their best. While at the same time, these are the things that you usually don't get in your sports specific coaching license or coaching education. So part one of the book is all around why do I coach and how do I have a higher purpose than winning? Part two is around the how. So it's got it's into the, like motor learning and skill acquisition and understanding what is a great practice look like the difference between coaching boys and coaching girls, uh, which is different coaching your own kid, which a lot of coaches do. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the different challenges that does. And then um, part three of the book is the, the question that a lot of people don't really think about a lot, which is like, what does it feel like to be coached by me? So this mm-hmm. is about culture. What does it feel like for kids to show up here every day and, and why it's so important to get really clear on like, what's it supposed to feel like here? And those things don't change. Right. Mm-hmm. And for me, for John O'Sullivan, that's about joy and competitiveness and accountability. Those are the things that matter to me. If you come to one of my practices, you'll always see that. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, and then redefining success. So I think it's a book, you know, I have, so I've had, since it came out in December, I've gotten emails that have ranged from, man, I read this book in one sitting and it blew me away. And others have said, it's taken me two months to get through this book because I'm taking so many notes and I can only read a couple pages and then I have to put it down and reflect on yeah. my own coaching. And so I, I really piled a ton of stuff in there. And, and what I say in the intro is you're not supposed to put, use all this at once, mm-hmm. right? Find your 10%. What can you layer in? What's one thing that you think, oh, you know what? I could layer that into what I'm doing right now. Um, and then if that works, then find something else and layer that in as well. So this is like, I, I want this to be a resource that people carry with them and refer back to and understand that there's no chapter there that John made up one morning. It's all based in research. <laughs> you know, it's all based in science. Um mm. But I like to tell stories. So all the chapters have lots of stories from great coaches that you've heard of and coaches, great coaches that maybe you haven't heard of, um, yeah. of, of how you do this. I, I love, I love how you start the book with that too, of just kind of a, here's how to use it. And I'm, I'm in the camp of, uh, I think I told you this on the call we had with the Salisbury coaches, you know, my Kindle told me it would take five hours to read the book. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to crush this thing so I can <laughs> be ready with questions when I, when I talk to John. And, uh, and uh, my Kindle lied to me because <laughs> I am definitely, I'm also much more intentional than I've ever been about not just taking notes. I used to read books and I'd underline and highlight and I'd write notes in the margin and I'd finish the book in a week and I'd start another book the second week. And I had a, a mentor challenge me one time and said, what are you reading all these books for? Like, what, what is the purpose of this? What is it, what do you do? What is it doing for you? What is it doing for the people you coach and teach and mentor? And he actually challenged me to go a year without reading a new book and just going back to old books and old things I pulled from and, and reread them, look at my notes, look at, and kind of pull from those things. And, and uh, I did it for about six months, but I love to read. So I didn't, I didn't make it the whole year, but, uh, but I think it's really good advice and the advice itself impacted me to say, make sure you're pulling stuff from what you're reading and you're implementing it. 
Yeah, and it can be information. I mean, certainly in this day and age, we can have information overload. Yeah. Right. Like it's you can do, and and then you try to do it all, and nothing works, and so then you just go back to the to the mean. You just default back to what was comfortable before, and you never take advantage of this good stuff. And so that's why I say, like, <clears throat> what's the one thing that you could say? Yeah, you know what? That's probably not absolutely necessary in my practice. Like you said in your first experience of, you know, do we really want to show up and run laps and do line drills? Mm-hmm. Or is there a better warm up that we can do that's more engaging cognitively and character wise and the kids will look forward to versus mm-hmm. mindless laps and line drills? You know, which there's no focus, there's no attention. Um, I never liked them as a kid. No, exactly. Like, like, but that's exactly it. You're like, God, I hated those. Let's do them, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and you're like, wow, well, if I hated them, why am I doing them? Exactly. Like, why? Yeah. Why can I? And I, I always challenge coaches this. Okay, why are you doing that? Like, what's the evidence that you have that says that is how you should start practice every day? Would you bet the mortgage on your house that that is the best way you could possibly start practice? And, I, and I've never had anyone go, hell yeah, right? right, right. <laughs> when it's line drills and, and, and laps and static stretching. Right, right. Well, I have, two, I have two questions from the book that came to mm-hmm. mind as you were sharing that. Number one, one of them, one of them I'm going to ask you to tell a story because I love your stories. And number two, um, uh, well, the one I'll ask first, I guess, is you talked in there about, and I'm, I'm forgetting the exact test, but you, a personality test that you guys use. Um, that was interesting to me because I think um, I resonated with when you were talking about kind of the, uh, uh, I think a lot of people do rely on these personality tests really heavily. And so you had a, a line in there about that, that I was really resonating with. And, and then when I saw that you use this particular one, I wanted to learn more about it. So talk about the test you use and maybe why you use it or. Yeah. Well, and, and so I'll start by saying it's not a test, right? Okay. It's not a test. Like the a test indicates that you get something right or get something wrong. Right. And so it's an assessment that we use. um, And, and there's lots of them, right. And you were in the business world. I'm sure many of your businesses use disc or Myers-Briggs or whatever. Here's the thing about personality assessments is that they're very hard to replicate in the lab. So, uh, you know, I, I talk about in the book that if you use this tool as something that becomes your fate, that is completely wrong. Right. Mm your assessment that you take in that questionnaire is really hard to, to replicate. And so you shouldn't look at your disc thing as, as an excuse to behave a certain way or to exclude certain people or whatever. So we use one called Equilibrium Sports. It uses colors called e-colors. And I love this one because the founder, this started in oil and gas safety, right? So offshore oil rigs were one of the most dangerous jobs in the world where people get hurt and die all the time. And they created this to help people communicate better, to teach people not to react, but respond. Um, and, and to teach people, you know, okay, who are the certain uh, personality types that would be reluctant to speak up? Well, if that's an engineer that notices that this thing's about to explode, you know, I need that guy to say, stop, shut the valve, not God, I hope my, if I say something, my boss will get mad at me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and so they cut 
you know, safety, you know, injuries and stuff down to basically near zero. And since then they've gone into healthcare and into schools. And so I met the CEO. And so I, I love this tool because again, it gives you insight into how you might potentially react in certain situations so that instead of reacting, you can respond. Mm-hmm. And as a leader, right, I tend to be uh, the type of person who moves very quickly, who likes to work alone, um, who doesn't grab a lot of input, right, which is why I own my own company and I don't mm-hmm. have a board, right? I just mm-hmm. want to go. I want to go. I want to go. Um, and then I'll f- come up with the details later. Some people are really detail-oriented. Some people are very people-oriented. And so I just like this because it's easy Um it's simple. It doesn't take a long time to do this. And I think it's a great lens for people to look, to sit in a room of 36 teammates and see the diversity in that room, see how they like to communicate, see how they like to get information, see what disrupts teamwork for them, see how they disrupt teamwork. And so I find it to be a very useful tool of, um, all right, Bobby's not buying in right now how can I best have a conversation with Bobby to get him on board? And it might not be how I want the information, right? If you want, if you feel like John O'Sullivan's not getting on board, please don't write me a three page flowery email. Just give me the freaking details and let's go. Right. That's how I want the information, but someone else might need to understand a little more of why they're so important to the group and, and, and how they're valued and how their input is needed so please give us your input, right? So this yeah. is the one that I like to use, um, but I always put in the caveat again that like, you know, if you talk to a hardcore scientist, they'll tell you that there's too many snake oil salesmen around personality tests. And so you just have to be very careful how they're used. I don't know, that's why I asked you to share it because I respect you and I know you, you uh, do your research and, and you know what you're talking about. And, uh, and I, you're right. I've been asked, you know, early on in my career, I was encouraged by mentors in the training space to be a certified disc or certified Myers Briggs, whatever. And I'm not putting those down, but for me, it just was never what excited me. It was never what I kind of wanted to do professionally. And, and I've, I, I've gotten better at, at, at just, you know, when people ask me, do you do this? I just say no. Um, and that side mm-hmm. of things from the professional side of things. Um, and then when I saw, you know, this in your book, I wanted to know more about it. Yeah, it, and, not, and, and all, like you said, it's not, it's not all bad. There's a lot of helpful things it can do if it's done right. Exactly. And, and here's the thing, right? The, 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 the scientist in the lab who says, well, if I can't replicate this every time that Bobby takes this, then it has no value. Versus I'm a practitioner, I'm a facilitator who just needs people to pause and look at something differently so that now they might be able to take in information. Those are, those are two different things, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so as, as my friend Lewis, who, who owns Equilibria would say, he's like, John, you know, for every scientist who says, I can't replicate this, he goes, I've got hundreds of lives saved hundreds of devastating injuries not done. He goes, I, I've seen the difference that this makes day after day after day in, in businesses. So you can't tell me that this doesn't work mm-hmm. because I have so much, you know, and, and so the, the hardcore scientist says, well, 
you know, that's not data, right? And it's like, okay, so I don't have data. But I have a lot of stuff will tell you that this changed the culture of our team. This changed our communication. This changed the way our business worked. And, and so in the, like the college teams that I work with and I do it with, like they feel very strongly, like this has helped us become a stronger family. We understand mm-hmm. each other. So that person in the lab who tells me that that's not working, I'm saying, okay, but if you interview these 30 kids and they all say, oh no, this has helped a ton. Are you telling me that that made no difference? Like, of course mm-hmm. it made a difference. So, well, that's, you know, I, I always talk with teams. I just today was having a conversation about, you know, in the world of smart goals, one of the concepts is measurable. And, and this is a not, I'm not a scientist. So this is my own anecdotal belief and experience. And I say that to the teams, you know, if you, if you like it, take it. If not, don't take it. But um, I think measurable, a lot of times, especially when we're working in sports and culture and team, um, you can, your measurement can be reflection. Your measurement might not be, you know, if your goal, I have a, an athlete whose goal is confidence. And, and now, I mean, that was her goal when we were together in person. And now she's trying to build that isolated and alone and, and in, in the current environment that we're in. And, and at some level, I was saying to her, you know, my birthday was yesterday. And I, um, for my birthday, what I like to do is reflect. So I have a journal. I've been using Evernote for a number of years. And so I'll have a tab in there where I reflect on a lot of different things and I'm able to look back at my past years and see where I was at. And so my reflection is my measurable Mm -hmm. and because there's certain things I can't put a number to. And so if you're talking about team dynamic, uh, community, sense of connection, sense of belonging, you know, I I work with a team that last year was two and 14. They only won two games Mm -hmm. and they, they love playing with each other. They love playing with the coach. They love that. They think they would, they would say on, on their assessments we do at the end of the year, their team connection is better than it's ever been. And so we can't look at the success of the team wins and losses to, to measure those things. It has to be reflection okay. and that's a fine measurement. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's some evidence and I'm, I'm not a sports scientist or like a strength and conditioning coach. Um, but there's a, what a lot of strength and conditioning coaches do, especially in like cycling and triathlon and stuff, right? They put a heart rate monitor on you and they encourage you to, you know, write that data down in your training journal day after day after day. But what they also um, encourage people to do is sort of like give a rating on a scale of one to 10 of like how you felt, right? Mm. Uh, And I felt an eight, I felt a nine, I felt a 10. Um, and then you're tracking your nutrition, you're tracking your sleep. And they say that after about, you know, three, four months of that, um, uh, an athlete that that's, that's that in tune with their body could, without a heart rate monitor, probably tell you where they were just by understanding their perceived exertion or, or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever it is. And so, you know, I, I think sometimes you know, we, we can feel it in our gut as well. You know, we never have like an awful day and God, God, I, you know, I felt great today. Like usually you're like, Oh yeah, well, of course I had an awful day. Um, and so I think that's, that's, you know, I I think that's something that, you know, is really, really important. I got to find that data as these soccer teams are spending more budget on these heart rate monitors. That's some good stuff for us. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, you know, I, I mean, again, it's not that the tool is not useful. Um, It's just that uh, if you attach the tool with getting them to know how they're feeling, then they can start being pretty close to the data that the tool's given you 
yeah. just by being in tune with themselves and, and their own training. You know, I mean, I'll say this, Bobby, like one of my proudest moments recently was one of the college teams that I work with um, had a, a, a transfer student from a really, really top school, um, you know, number one in the country. And what this kid said was that when they were looking to transfer, um, she was watching videos of our team post-game interviews and we're a top 10, top 15 team. So it's not like we're, you know, we're, we're very good. And um, she was watching videos and she saw how the players talked about the team and the culture and the smiles and how they treated each other just from like highlight videos. And she was like, and she, she called her parents and said, I want to be part of that group. Right. I want to be like, that's what I want to be a part of right there. That fe- mm-hmm. that's what I want to feel. And, and then, and then she got there and she said the other day, um, she said, you know, she told this story to the whole team and she said, and since I've been here, it's like 10 times better than I ever imagined it. Mm-hmm. Now, to me, that's the like greatest compliment I could get as someone who's doing team development Right. Is that this family is so strong and so supportive and so amazing that we can compete like crazy and fight for spots and push each other and try to win championships. But at the same token, like we can love each other and, and, and look back at this family so fondly, like that's what I think sport should be about. Because again, you weren't two and 10 or whatever, because, you don't know anything about coaching. Sometimes you just don't have the talent to win. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you, you, yeah. you can't sports psych your way around talent. Right. Um, but when it's close and when you are at the top of a sport, when you're competing for a championship, when it's little half a percent here or there, that family can make the difference between winning the one goal game and losing the one goal game. Yeah, I think you're spot on. That's a that's an awesome story, and and uh, and you're absolutely right. You know, the the one team was two and fourteen, and another team uh, was in a moment of they won a, a couple overtime games, and at the end of the season, the coach said, "I think it's because of the work we did." Like, truly believes it's the work we did on on culture and psychology and team. Like, it's that sliver, and all of it plays into it. You know, mm-hmm. you can't do this but not have the talent and and somehow pull off a, a national championship season uh it all it all plays into it um what i wanted what I, that sparked for me was i was going to ask you to share um i heard you shared this on your podcast in your book and then also with the salisbury coaches um when steve kerr i think it was talked to pete carroll um before he took over the golden state warriors Do you know the story i'm talking about or yeah you, yeah, the, yeah. I mean, this is a really impactful story for me yeah. um so when, when he got the Warriors job, um, Jerry was, you know, one of Steve's sort of consultants. He had read Jerry's books as a player and they had stayed in touch since his days with the Bulls. And so um, he, um, uh, in sort of like, okay, I'm going to be a head coach. He'd never, ha- he'd never coached any team before. And now he's the head coach of the Warriors, right? He was a broadcaster. Um, but he'd always wanted to coach. And so he'd been thinking about coaching, but his agent set him up to go spend some time with Pete Carroll and the Seahawks right after they won the Super Bowl. And he, so he gets there, spends a couple days and then he meets with Pete and Pete goes, how are you going to coach your team? And um, Steve's like, what do you mean? Like, what's the offense? What is the defense? He's like, no, no, no. Like 
what's it going to feel like to come to work? And I've used this phrase a lot of times because I've made this my own as well now, right? Mm -hmm. Is what's it going to feel like? Like, what's it supposed to be like when people show up? Do you know? And Steve's like, I never really thought about that before, right? I thought that kind of just took care of itself. So Pete, you know, told him how he went, you know, when he lost the job in, I think, New England, um, he was an assistant with the 49ers. And Bill Walsh at that time was sort of like the emeritus, you know, just sitting in his office. He goes, but what was really interesting was like, no one, everyone who had been with the 49ers forever was afraid to go talk to Bill Walsh. He's like, but I wasn't because I was new. So every day after lunch, I'd go sit with Bill Walsh for an hour and pick his brain. And this is what he taught me is like, you got to have these core principles. And so um, that's what he taught Steve. He's like, you got to know what's it going to feel like. So go home and, and, and figure that out. And what Steve came up with is I want the Warriors to be about joy, about competitiveness, about compassion, and about mindfulness. And I, these things have to come through every single day. He's like, and then I was lucky. I, I, you know, I have one of the most joyful players in the world and Steph Curry, you know, mm-hmm. on my roster. So I have these people who epitomize what I want this to feel like. He goes, so I inherited this great talented team that won 50 games, but Steve took them to a whole new level and created a family that a Kevin Durant wanted to be a part of mm-hmm. that guys were willing to take less money to be there to win a championship. And mm-hmm. I think this process is something that now we teach coaches, right? If you, you know, what's it supposed to feel like for you? What is authentically the most important to you? And so I always ask my teams what they want it to feel like, but after I've been coaching a bit, I think I come through. And the number one thing for me, because I work with 12 year olds is also joy. Like Mm -hmm. if it's not fun, why are you even here? Right. Mm -hmm. And if you get too far away from that, it's you that have to hit the reset button. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's what, honestly, you know, I, I started the, this interview by talking about how I was first introduced to you and the, the, and my listeners have heard this story enough, so I won't tell the whole story, but it was working with a top 10 uh, or top 15, I think it was volleyball program. And, and I come in ready to do team culture and peak performance. And halfway through the day, I realized, I said, I go, are you guys having fun? And I go, not, not with my training. I go, are you having fun with volleyball? And one of the players looked at me like I was an idiot. And she goes, no, not really. And she goes, our playing volleyball here is like a dream job. You know, I can't believe we're here. I love it. It's great. And if we got a day off, if I didn't have to do it, I, if I could have a scholarship without playing volleyball, I'd take that option, right? Yeah. Like your dream job is awesome. <clears throat> if you get paid to not work, most people would take that option. And that's when I – TJ is a mentor of mine. So I talked to him about that. And that's when he said, you got to look up John's stuff because I said, I go, here we are coming in to, to do this incredible work and the players aren't having any fun. Right. How do we, how do we get back to the joy? Cause that number one is, is the reason we play the game. Um, so I love that story. Um, yeah. Go ahead. I don't know if you have yeah, no, I was just going to say, that. and especially, right. I love working with some division three teams because there is no scholarship. Right. Right. So I, you know, those coaches, it's like, you might want to win a national title, but if this isn't fun, there's nothing keeping him here. You're not yeah. paying for school. So right. it better be a great place. It better be a great family. And, and it better be something that brings a lot of joy to their lives. And, um, you know, that, that's an interesting thing. Cause I've, you know, I, I've worked, you know, I think in division three, you still sometimes get the multi-sport athlete 
And in a couple of the programs I've worked with, um, kids have quit their other sport and just come to ours. Cause they're like, yeah, like this is fun. And this is like an awesome family. And the other group is really petty and this and that and the other thing. And, mm-hmm. and so I think that's interesting. Like, um, you know, that so many coaches, again, no one ever teaches you this in coaching school. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so you got to go out and look for it. But I, I encourage anyone listening, like if go down this rabbit hole, because I think it makes co- coaching more fun too. Like you have to be able to sleep at night um, with, you know, how am I treating my players? Do they like each other? Or cause we've all coached in one games where like that night, you're like, God, I hate this. You know, like it just doesn't feel good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So how do folks find your stuff? If they're going to go down the rabbit hole, how yeah. they, what's the best way to find your book, find your website, find the conference. The books are all, you know, every moment matters. And then changing the game was the first book. And those are on uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all the places you buy books. Um, I I just learned about book depository, which is super cool because uh, uh, it's free shipping international. So save yourself a few bucks. Um, But then if you want like a signed copy and all our other stuff, the website's changing the game project.com. That's the mothership link to the way of champions podcast link to our blog get on our we do a wednesday wisdom newsletter so that's how you can get yourself connected with that and uh yeah awesome awesome um and then my last question that i ask and and you you had a great answer to this earlier too with how you and jerry connected um but it's simply you know the the theme of the podcast and is 50 cups of coffee the idea being uh we benefit from connection we benefit from you know literally we mentioned joe segula um when i had him on here he said that he every wednesday he sits in the coffee shop on campus because 70% of foot traffic goes there and he's just there and if players want to stop by and say hi they can if they don't need if they just want to wave at him they can but he's a presence and that has just been big for his coaching so i always like to give room to say do you have a 50 cups of coffee story it could be a story where you benefited from connection or it could be something where you were intentional about connection with a player um and it's just a story to inspire coaches or managers or anyone to prioritize connection yeah i'll tell one and and this is secondary for me but one of the things I talk about in my talks, and this was a, a teaching book I read a while ago, is I, I teach all our coaches to ask this question of their players before a season and, and have it get the answer in writing. It says, one thing I wish my coaches knew about me that would help them coach me better is dot, dot, dot. I would think anyone, even in a business, one thing I wish my boss knew about me that would help him or her lead me better is dot, dot, dot. And I say, mm-hmm. don't tell me something technical, like I'll work on my left foot. Like I'll see that. Right. But tell me something I might not ever know about you that I'll see. And so in my own players, I've learned that parents are getting divorced, that dad has cancer, that things like that. This is a whole new lens, but I had a coach that I taught that to. And a year later he pulled me aside. He was at one of my talks again. He's like, I got to tell you this story. He goes, I asked that of my high school girls soccer team and one girl put back wrote in there that she was thinking of ending her life right because Mm -hmm. her parents had both lost their jobs um they were they were about to lose their house they were gonna have to live in their van and she's like i just like i can't go on i'm so embarrassed 
um, this is, you know, what's the point anymore. Right. And so Mm -hmm. he reads this and he's like, holy cow. So he calls the school counselor, gets the girl in right away with a counseling standpoint, lets the team know about it. All the parents chip in and uh, pay the rent or pay the mortgage, whatever for six months and keep the family's house for them. Wow. And then, you know, dad gets a new job and they're back on their feet. And, and he's telling me this and he's got tears in his eyes and he's like, like that question saved a kid's life. Yeah. That's connection right there. Right. And, and so sometimes when we think our role as a coach is about making people better at sport, you never realize you know, this is why every moment matters that that question mm-hmm. you answer, you might be the one person that they're going to open up to, that they're going to learn from. You might be the last person that has a chance to influence this kid in a positive direction. So take it seriously. That's awesome. That's a beautiful story. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I love mm-hmm. that uh, answer to this question. Um, I think it sums up, sums up the whole podcast the whole show the whole everything right it's uh I, I learned this phrase from you i don't know i don't think you came up with it but it's the concept that you don't coach a sport you don't coach a player you coach a kid yeah. um that is i learned that from your work and and and, and i think it that impacted me greatly and that's dr martin story. toms okay there you dr go. martin toms I, I stole that from <laughs> i well it's funny i attribute it to you while saying i don't think he said this <laughs> dr martin toms you don't coach a, you, you coach a child not a sport yeah um so that's awesome uh thank you thank you for doing this john it was good to talk to you anything you want to say before we sign off no it's great thanks for having me on and thanks to everyone who takes the time to listen to these things and uh you know makes themselves better every day at whoever you're leading um you know, when they see, you know, the, the greatest teacher is your own model, right? So mm-hmm. when you're modeling vulnerability and learning and uh, getting better, then the people that you're influencing will probably do the same. Awesome. Thank you, John. Thanks, Bob. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the 50 Cups of Coffee podcast. To learn more about our mission, check out the 50 Cups of Coffee Challenge TEDx Talk on YouTube and follow me on social media at Bobby Audley. This show's theme music and art is by Matisse Soy.